The following sermon audio. The following sermon audio. The following sermon audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church. Of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. Today's teaching. Today's teaching. Today's teaching comes from FIBC Assistant Pastor. Assistant Pastor Austin Salisbury. Have you ever known someone? with great potential. Have you ever known someone that was excellent at something they were given, uh, maybe they were born with great talent or they were given a great opportunity and, and there was so much enthusiasm, there was so much hope in this person's potential that you could almost feel it. Your expectation was that they were gonna do great things. We see this a lot in the sports world. If you're interested in sports or you've watched the Olympics or, or football or American football, then you know the, the kind of hype that comes with certain players, right? They're going to be the next Michael Jordan. They're going to be the next Carl Lewis or the next uh, whoever it is, the next Maradona. They're going to be amazing. And then they get into their field of sport, whatever it is, and, and they just sort of fizzle out. It's disappointing. It's discouraging. There's a lot of questions about why. But we also see the same phenomenon happen in uh, public figures, don't we? Uh, someone is elected, rising on a, on a great platform. They're maybe very charismatic. A, a man or woman has impressed great numbers of people to vote for them, and they've, they have all these expectations. There's so much potential of what could be. And then there's a scandal, or there's an economic collapse, or the platform falls apart, and the person ends up being kind of forgettable. And there's a lot of questions about what could have been. Well, today we are going to look at one of history's great disappointments. One of definitely the Bible's most interesting character studies. And that is the first king of Israel, King Saul. He's a complicated figure. Now, maybe when you're growing up in Sunday school or, or if you have some idea of King Saul, you have this image in your mind. David is a good guy. Saul is a bad guy. We love David. We don't like Saul. He's mean and evil. End of story. But I think as we look at Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel today, you're going to see that that's not exactly the case. I, I think that Saul is one of the most interesting and complicated and challenging figures in all of the Bible history. And here's why I think he is. Because I see myself in Saul. I see this great potential in Saul, this great expectation for his life, and then I see him succeeding and failing over and over again, a pattern of of this juxtaposition. And I think, I hope, that you may see a little bit of that in yourself as well. Well, of course, I, I hope that you don't fail, but I hope that you can see and be sympathetic with this character of Saul and this person that he was and the difficult position he was in, and I hope that we can learn today three lessons from the life of Saul to help us avoid the pitfalls and the disappointment that he experienced as king. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you be with us today as we look at your word uh, from your prophet Samuel and we look at the life of King Saul. We ask that you would teach us the things you would like us to know from scripture, that we would be able to see into the life of Saul the truth that you hope for all of us to experience. Amen. 
I want to go quickly through a biography of Saul, but it's hard to go quickly through a biography of Saul because he had a very interesting life, and he had a very interesting reign as king. So I'm going to first today start with an overview of the biography of Saul, and then we'll follow that with some of the lessons that I think we can take away from the life of Saul. So if you have your Bibles today and you want to open, you can open to 1 Samuel chapter 8 and 9. We will be going from 8, 9, all the way through chapter 15 today. We'll kind of jump around a little bit, so just bear with me. If you're taking notes today uh, in your study guide, I'm going to give you those fill-in-the-blank answers right now. First of all, um, the purpose of this section from 1 Samuel is to give an account of the life and reign of the first king of Israel, or of Saul. That's the purpose of this passage. And the main idea of this passage, which we'll come back to in the end, is that God desires complete obedience. God desires complete love. And you'll remember uh, the conversation that Jesus had in the New Testament when the young lawyer said, what do I have to do to inherit life? And he said, what does the law say? And then the young lawyer says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your mind and your strength and your soul, right? That's the, the main idea here is we're going to see that God wants all of Saul, but does Saul give all of himself to the Lord? We'll see. So, a great thinker once said, to understand any man or woman, you must understand the time in which they lived. We've spent the last six weeks talking about the time of the judges, uh, and that is the time that Saul is born into, at the very end of the time of Judges. So last week, Eric talked about Samuel. He was the last of the judges. But there was a problem in Samuel's family. I don't know uh, if you've ever known someone like this, where the mom and dad or the, the adults the, seems to just have it all together, and then the kids just are a disaster. If that feels like your own family, do not raise your hand, okay? But Samuel was a great prophet. He was a great man, but his kids were not following in his footsteps. And so the people knew this, and they said to Samuel, Samuel, your, your sons are not going to be our judges. We want a king. Now, to understand, this is a strange question. This is like the American Revolution or the French Revolution in reverse. They're coming to Samuel, and they're saying, we want a king. We want a king to rule over us and command our armies and unite us and protect us from our enemies. Because that's what all the other people have in our region. We want the same thing. Now, why would they ask for that? Well, two reasons. One, because Israel's tribes were divided. When a judge would rise up, like Deborah or Barak or one of these people, they would be a judge for a region of Israel, not all of Israel. They would only be addressing a crisis or situation in one area. What, what the people wanted is they wanted a single king to unify them politically and, mil and unify their military so that they could be strong as a unified nation and not a section or a group of smaller tribes. Now, that's what they wanted. They saw their neighbors had that. They thought it would be an advantage politically. Um, but there were some problems with this. Listen to what Samuel says to them. He says this. Excuse me. He says, if you, uh, if you want a king, you need to know this. A king will take off your sons to war. He will make your daughters come and work in his home and work as his bakers and his servants. And lastly, a king will take the best from your fields for himself. That's what a king does. And lastly, he says, in that day, if you have a king, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you on that day. This is a little bit like the moment in Israel's history when they say, God, 
we thank you for everything you've done for us, but we really, we really need somebody else to kind of manage us. And, and God's saying, no, no, you don't want that. I am the king that you want. And they say, no, we want what the other people have. They followed up Samuel's warning by saying this. They still demanded a king, knowing that they would be ser- servants to the king instead of to, directly to the Lord. And Samuel says, and then God tells Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. So this is the end of the time of the judges. The people say we want a king. This begins the, the long history of kings in Israel. And so what happens is Samuel chooses Saul. Now, why does he choose Saul? There's a couple of reasons why. One is, he comes from a wealthy family of Benjamites. Now, this may seem really boring, like, what's a Benjamite? Isn't that what you put on bread in Australia? No, no, no. A Benjamite was the tribe of Benjamin. It's the smallest tribe, right? And so by choosing a Benjamite, uh, Samuel doesn't um, alienate the larger tribes. The larger tribes would have argued about having the king from one tribe or the other, but Samuel chooses Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, secondly, Saul comes from a wealthy family, a prosperous family. He's respected. And above all else, he's very good looking. Now, you may say to yourself, oh, that's so old-fashioned. We don't pick our kings and leaders because they're good looking. But it's not true because I biked to, uh, to church today and I saw the posters around Copenhagen and every face is beautiful, shining, nice teeth, nice hair, beautiful eyes, cool style, beautiful posters. We still have this desire to elect and cheer for and vote for people who appeal to us. And so Samuel picks Saul because he's prosperous, he comes from a good family, he's not going to be a political liability, and he's nice looking. Now also, this is interesting from the book of Samuel, he was very tall. It says in the book of Samuel that he stood shoulder and head above all the other Israelites. So, he was impressive. Saul was very good-looking on the outside. He's tall, he's good-looking, he's rich, basically he's Scandinavian, okay? (laughs) So, the rest of chapter 9 is all about the process of making Saul king. Now, one thing that's interesting is that Saul doesn't really want to be king. Or at least he's nervous about it. And we see that when Saul kind of brings Samuel to make him king, he says, I present to you Saul. And he turns and Saul is not there. And they say, where is Saul? He's hiding with the luggage. And so Samuel has to go, just a moment. And he has to go and get Saul and bring him back and say, here is your king. And they all, of course, look at him, and he's tall, and he's impressive, and they say, okay, um, uh, yeah, this guy is going to be our king. And that's actually, I learned, where we get the phrase in English that someone is head and shoulders above their opponent, their head and shoulders better, comes from this passage of the Bible. Now, what happens early on in his life is Saul is not especially brave. We don't know that he's a great warrior, that he's done brave things. In fact, he's not even shown to be that competent in working for his father, who is a wealthy herder, but he does something very wise. We're going to talk a lot about the bad things that Saul does, but he does one thing very wise. He surrounds himself by men of valor. That's one sign of a good leader, that where you're weak, you surround yourself by people who are strong. That's one thing he does that's wise. Second thing that Saul does that is uh, to his credit is there's some haters in Saul's life. Now, if you don't know the phrase haters, hater is someone who doesn't believe you can do what you say you can do. And there's some men that say, how can this man be our king? This guy? And his uh, attendants say, Saul, should we um, take care of these, these guys, these doubters? And Saul says, no, don't do that. 
He shows mercy. So he shows wisdom and mercy early on. Now, here comes the exciting part. Saul, early in his career, has success. He's a good military leader. We see him effectively raise an army, and then he does something that every heroic king should do. This is beautiful. There's a town that's in trouble, and they're being oppressed, and the uh, oppressive army says, we're going to cut the eyes out of all the people in this town because no one can come and rescue you. And Saul gets together a huge army, and they march to the rescue, and they push out the invaders, and they save the town. And of course, this is what happens. People go crazy. They go, this is it. This is, this is the guy. This is the king we all wanted. We got him. Samuel made a great choice, and, and this is it. And everyone celebrates because Saul is victorious. And notice what Saul says after the victory. He says, today the Lord has worked salvation. He gives credit to the Lord on the, after that first victory. It also says in that chapter that he's filled with the Spirit of the Lord, and he gives God credit. Now, Something else happens after this victory. Now, I, I, I kind of imagine that Saul is, he's jazzed, right? He wasn't sure he could do the king thing, but, but he took a chance, and he was heroic, and he got the army together, and they battled, and they won, and now people are going, Saul, yes! You know, he is our champion. We can trust him. But something happens now that is going to change the trajectory of Saul's life forever. In ancient Israel is very different than in our Protestant era that we live now. The New Testament teaches us that, uh, that we, are, uh, uh, we are all priests. And what that means, at least in English, the translation is that you don't need someone to intercede to God on your behalf, another human. You can go directly to God. That's part of, of what Jesus' life was all about. It's what the di- disciples and apostles taught. It's what we live in now, is that, is that I can appeal directly to God. I can pray to him, I can talk to him, I can ask for wisdom, and I I can appeal to him. But that wasn't the case in ancient Israel. The priests served the function of being the uh, intermediaries between the people and God. But Saul does something very foolish. It's time to make a sacrifice. Samuel's not around, and Saul gets impatient and decides he will make the sacrifice. Now, I don't know if we can really imagine that, because it's kind of like you know, Austin's not here, I I can take the offering, that's not a big deal. But in this culture, this was about as big of a violation as you could ever commit, and it shows us something about Saul. He was not clear on where the boundaries of his authority were. And he begins to act as if he has a spiritual authority. When Samuel arrives, he says this, He says, Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God. The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept the commands that the Lord gave you. Notice that Samuel says that the Lord has now chosen a man after God's own heart. We know who that is, right? That's David. David was called a man after God's own heart. But the implication here is that Saul is no longer a man after God's own heart. Maybe he was, but at this moment he is not, and so God is seeking someone else. 
From here, we see in chapter 14 that Saul is still the political king, but he continues to fail. He makes poor choices in battle. He makes poor choices in the way that he treats his soldiers. He uh, gets tangled up in legalism. He tries to act like a spiritual authority, while meanwhile he makes very poor choices. He asks God for help, and God does not speak to him. And then the climactic moment in the life of Saul comes from a direct disobedience. God commands Saul through Samuel to destroy a group of people called the Amalekites. It's one of the many ites in the Old Testament, right? We have the, the, the Gideonites, we have, the, we have the, all these different ites, right? And the Amalekites were especially evil, and this is why. When the people of Israel were traveling to the promised land, the Amalekites oppressed them. They brutalized them, they attacked them, they, they, uh, they, they, they were vicious to the Israelites. And God says, enough is enough. Saul, I want you to destroy the Amalekites. Every man, every woman, every child, every ox, every cow, everything. And keep nothing for yourself from them because what they have is dirty money. And we will not have that in Israel. And so Saul goes into battle. He's victorious. But he does something foolish. The people say to Saul, his soldiers, Saul, we can't destroy all of this stuff. This is good stuff. This is good meat. This is good wine. These are treasures. Can we keep some of it? And Saul gives in. I think this just shows us a little more of his insecurity, that he was so pressured by the voices around him that he said yes when he knew God's command was directly opposed to that. So, Not only do they bring spoils back from the battle, but they also save the king of the Amalekites, who's got a great villain name, by the way, Agag, all right, or Agag. And they they don't kill him, even though he's the leader of this evil tribe. They bring him back, and in the morning, the Lord is angry, Samuel is angry, and Samuel comes out to confront Saul, and Saul says, "I I did exactly what God told me to do. I did it. And Samuel says, no, you didn't. You took spoils. You brought the king back. You didn't kill all the people that uh, you were commanded to do. Um, and, uh, and this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. This is the last chance that Saul has. And listen to what, listen to what Saul, um, Samuel says. He says to Saul, has the Lord, well, first of all, Saul tries to say, this is classic. I just brought all this stuff back so I could offer it as an offering to the Lord. This is for the altar. These, 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 these animals are meant to be an offering for the Lord, which, of course, I think we can read between the lines that that was never the intention. So he tries to make excuses and he lies, and so Samuel says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obedience? Behold, it is better to obey than to sacrifice, and because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And that, of course, is David. Now, I'll just give you a few more little nuggets about the life of Saul. This is ostensibly is the end of Saul's authority, of moral authority and spiritual authority. Completely, there is nothing left. But he does do something that tells us more about his character. He says to Samuel, he says, I have sinned. 
Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before all of Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed down before the Lord. Notice what he says, the Lord your God. The Lord your God. Depending on the translation of the Bible that you're reading, he actually says that multiple times in this chapter. At this point in Saul's life, the God he serves, who, who appointed him as king and who has been with him in battle, is so distant from him that he refers to him as the God of Samuel, not even his own God. The other interesting thing there is that notice how badly Saul doesn't want to lose respect among the people. He doesn't say, listen to this, he doesn't say, Honor me before the elders of my people and before the people of Israel. Return with me that I might bow down and repent before God. He says that he may not lose honor among the elders and the people of Israel. Not honor with the Lord. So we can see that something in Saul has changed. What remains in the rest of 1 Samuel chapter 15, which is the last chapter before we are introduced to David, uh, is something that I think is actually very Um, It's very violent. It's also very interesting from a narrative perspective. We still have a problem because remember Agag, the villain, the king of the Amalekites? He's not dead, which God commanded him to do. So this is what happens in verse 32, chapter 15. Then Samuel said, "Bring uh, bring to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And the king Agag says, surely the bitterness of death has passed. And Samuel said, And I think this is one of the best one-liners in the whole Bible. Samuel says, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And then Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord. The priest became the executioner because the king could not fulfill his responsibility as a military leader. The rest of Saul's life is tragic. You can read about it in the rest of 1 Samuel and part of 2 Samuel. He becomes bitter. He becomes jealous. He becomes very irrational uh, to the point of obsession until ultimately uh, there are two accounts of his suicide in 1 and 2 Samuel. His life uh, was not a success by any standard. I don't think it's fair to say that he was uh, a purely evil person. I think it's fair to say that Saul had three significant issues that kept him from being the king that he could have. Here's what they are, I think. I think he was not purely cowardly, faithless, foolish, or a disappointment. I believe Saul was divided. His heart was divided. He had communion with God, but he desperately desired human approval. He didn't seem especially brave, but he surrounded himself with brave people. He was incredibly attractive, but he was deeply insecure. There was so much contrast in Saul's life, but I think what we basically see is his human frailty as well as his divided nature. Here are the three ways I think that Saul reveals his divided character. Number one, I believe that his outer beauty, his outer charisma, disguised his inner frailty his weaknesses. There's limits to what beauty can provide for us. 
And we live in an age now that is, uh, the image has never been more prevalent than it is now. From photographs to the internet to our phones to billboards to everywhere we go. Some estimates say that on an any given day you may see somewhere between 20 and 40,000 images a day. The world works, our world works strongly in the image, but what is behind the image? He was the most attractive man in Israel, he was tall, he was handsome, he had charisma, but inside his heart was weak. Notice in 1 Samuel chapter 16, if you want to flip over one page in your Bible, chapter 7, the Lord says this to Samuel when he's choosing which of Jesse's son will become king. He says this, maybe this is a bit of a hint from the Lord to Samuel about the failings of Saul. He says, do not look only on his appearance or on on his height or his stature, because I have rejected him. This is one of David's brothers. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I think that Saul had a lot to offer by way of his charisma, his personality, his appearance, but his heart was weak. So number one, the Lord looks at our heart and he wants our hearts to be turned to him. Number two, At the beginning of his uh, reign, it says that Saul was filled with the Spirit of the Lord, but I think by the end, we can see that he was filled with the Spirit of himself. You know, after the battle with the Amalekites, when he was supposed to kill everyone, uh, he does something just bizarre. Between the battlefield and his headquarters, he builds a monument to himself. As if he has done this great thing, and he's been so obedient, and he's been so successful to fulfill all of God's commands, he decides to build a monument to himself. If you remember in the first battle, he gave all the glory to God. By the last battle, he's giving the glory to himself. You know and I know that we live in the greatest age of self-promotion and self-obsession that there has ever been, right? I mean, you can't take 10 steps without seeing someone take a selfie or post a Twitter, or Instagram, or update their blog. It's the world that we live in. It's the culture of the self. And I think that there is a trap in that that we see in the life of Saul. He began to see himself as more of a spiritual authority than he was. He saw himself as being a greater victor in battle than he really was. And honestly, he saw himself, I believe, as a greater king than he was. We see that he wasn't filled with the Spirit of God, but with the Spirit of self. Let's contrast that with what we see in Ephesians 5. When Paul is writing in Ephesians 5, he says, Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, always and forever, giving thanks to the, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. Walking in wisdom, seeking to understand the Lord's will and giving thanks always. These are ways to guard against the spirit of the self. And thirdly, over and over in Saul's life, we see him compromise his character. And I think this leads to the destruction of his soul. Listen to this. He compromised his obedience to God's sacred priestly laws. He compromised his common sense and wisdom in battle. He compromised his obedience to God's commands against the Malachites. And he compromised his honesty, his priority, and the well-being of those around him, even his own sons. He compromised over and over 
the result was that he drifted further and further from the Lord, his God, until God became the Lord, your God. Each time he compromised, he stepped further and further away from the king that he could have been. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? The king, the crown, the throne, the castle, the knights in armor, the ladies in waiting, whatever it is in your age, in our age. What does it profit us if we gain all of that, but we lose our soul? Now, I won't speculate on the destiny of Saul's eternal soul, but I do believe that his frailty of character, his submission to the spirit of self, and his repeated compromise sets Saul apart as one of the great could-have-beens in all of history. I agree with Ravi Zacharias when he says that Saul's was a life that lost, lost its focus. It was a tragic and destructive biography. Dr. Zacharias says one other thing about Saul that I can't help but share with you because it, it's so memorable. He says, the distance between the head and the neck is short. And if we stare at our halos or our crowns too long, they will become our noose. And that was true in the case of Saul. In conclusion, it's not all doom and gloom. I promise you, yes, the life of Saul is tragic, but there's two things I want us to take away as you go back into the 21st century uh, world, away from kings and beheadings and evil agags and, and, and all these things that we see in the Old Testament. Two things to remember. One, God knew of Saul's imperfections, and he let Samuel anoint him as king anyway. What does that mean for us? Is it possible that God is willing to give us opportunities despite our frailties and our failings? I think, yes, it does. And then secondly, if God is going to give people broken, failing, sinful people opportunities to lead, then what do we do? How do we avoid being a Saul? Well, I think the way we do that is that we stay as close as we can to the Spirit of the Lord. I think... Where Saul lost his way was he, he began to see himself as the king of kings instead of looking to the king of kings. Of course, he didn't know Jesus. There was no Christ at that time. But he knew of Yahweh, the God of Israel, who had done so many things. And yet he forgot that perhaps his kingship, his reign, his power were all temporary. That's where he lost his way. It's a tragic story, but there's lessons for us to learn in it. God does want to use you, and he does want to use me, in your home, in your school, in your business, in your neighborhood. Despite your failings, he's willing to bring us to a place where we can be the one on the precipice of greatness. Not our own grace, greatness. Saul, Saul saw that that was a dead-end street. But what we can do is we can be the voice and the hands and the feet and the heart of God in our city and in your workplaces and in your schools. If we will stay close to the Lord, that if we will be filled with his spirit, not the spirit of the age or the spirit of the self, but the spirit that endures forever and ever, that never changes, that we will look to the king of kings 
That is our only hope. As we lead and live in the world we live in, as we try to sidestep the mistakes that Saul made, we must look to God first, that we must be men and women after his own heart, like David was. Next Sunday, Eric is going to begin uh, our, our series, our mini-series on the life of David, who was a man after God's own heart, who had his own failings and his own mistakes. But we will see some significant differences between the life of Israel's first king and their second king. Let's pray together. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.dk or facebook.com forward slash FIBCCPH. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.